0: Uh, So as Stephen said, uh, I am your rival in Redwood City. uh, Much smaller group, though. And this grew out of uh, the temple in Mountain View, where I kind of grew up. Uh, It started getting a little crowded there, and so my teacher suggested at some point that I go out and start a small sitting group someplace. And uh, we just celebrated our 10th anniversary. So uh, that little small sitting group uh, kind of grew up But we're at the other end, we're over by 280. And uh, unfortunately, the night that we meet is Monday evening, which is the same night you meet. So, um, because I would really love to spend more time here with you and with Gil. Another amendment I must make to my wonderful introduction is the parrot is no more. (laughs) (laughs) Parrots live a very, very long time and Charlie was almost 35 years old, but he died at Thanksgiving, sadly, so. Well, I wanted to share something about uh, what is it we're doing here? I think everybody comes to meditation practice for different reasons. Uh, But once we get here, I think we all have a common question. And we might articulate it to ourselves in different ways. But it really comes down more or less to I've been given this miraculous opportunity, this, this body, to be in this world, but what for? Is it, is it just to be here? Am I supposed to do something? What is actually required of me in this time, this, this short, short time that I have? Well, in my tradition, Uh, it's the simplest of the more formal traditions in the uh, Mahayana uh, stream. But we do have a few chants. And one of the very first chants that you learn is called the robe chant. And this is to honor uh, that moment when the Buddha left his home, the palace, and his king, his father, his mother and donned the robe of an ascetic monk. And that robe, in Japanese at least, is called Kesa. I'm not sure what the Sanskrit is. But it is the same robe that I wear today. This this is a mini version of it. It's shaped like this in rectangular form. And it's, it's just this very large piece of cloth with lots of strips because they used the winding claws that they cremated people in and they would wear it under this arm, but up here, tied. And that was traditionally the robe that all spiritual followers used in those days. This was not something made up by the Buddha. If you look at the old pictures of the Indian ascetic monks and teachers, this is what they wore. At some point, the Buddha decided that his disciples needed something that would distinguish them so that if their bad behavior became apparent, he would know that it was his monks and not somebody else's and he could modify their behavior. Uh, So he asked his disciple, Ananda, to help him create a version of that case that that was very distinctive. And that is the version that has come down and that all monks, whether they're in the forest tradition, the Tibetan tradition, or my tradition, all wear. So on informal occasions I wear this, which is called a rakasu, but on formal occasions when I'm sitting in zazen at the temple, I wear the full kesa. But the chant, in the morning, it's all folded. There's a special way that you fold it, and you put it on your head. And the chant that you do before you actually open it up says, well, there are many translations, but the old version was, Now I open Buddha's robe." a field far beyond form and emptiness, wearing the Tathagata's teachings, saving all sentient beings. The first years that I was an ordained monk, I took this very seriously, obviously, and and literally, that I was opening this robe, and I was going to put it on. I was taking refuge in this robe. And in this robe, I would do my best to end suffering and save all beings. But what I began to understand as the years went by is that this cloth robe was really just a symbol, in a way almost unnecessary, except as a mindfulness technique to remind me that the real Buddha's robe that we all put on when we sit in meditation is the mind robe. The robe that is Buddha's heart. And this is the robe that we open and we wrap it around ourselves. The idea, of course, is that you are wearing Buddha's robe at all times, that you behave at all times as though you are wrapped in the Buddha's heart. But, of course, we don't do that a lot of the times. But it is in this Heart robe, this mind robe, that we begin to open ourselves. Not only do we wrap it around ourselves, but we begin to wrap it around each individual we meet, each moment that comes before us. This heart robe is beyond all thoughts of duality, it's beyond good and bad. Like dislike. It has nothing to do with any of those. This robe embraces everything. The Buddha had a teaching in which he said, within this fathom-long body is found all the teachings, is found suffering, is found the cause of suffering and is found the end of suffering this is really good news we don't have to travel to india or japan or nepal to find the teachings they're wow they're right here in in this little body really in in that body in that body that's wonderful i don't have to go anywhere i don't need money i don't need necessarily good health, I don't need youth, I can start right where I am with this body so he says the teachings are right here what what is he talking about well we clearly know about suffering we know about suffering in the body I was desperately ill last week with an intestinal bug (laughs) I will tell you that is suffering. <laughs> and you've all had it at some point, And the high fever and, you know, the body doing its thing. And at some point thinking, oh, please, just let me die. It would be easier. Right? So there's that kind of suffering. There's physical suffering. But that's not the worst kind of suffering. The worst kind of suffering is the kind that lives in our hearts and our minds. The suffering of jealousy and envy, of wanting. Oh, we want all the time. We want things. We want uh, love. We want attention. We want position. There are so many. I mean, our, our lists of wants are never ending. I watch myself driving down the street and I see some curbside refuse that's about to be picked up. And as I'm going by, I just look to see if there might be something there that I might want to stop and get. And I have gotten some great stuff that way, I must say. (laughs) But I watch my mind thinking, oh, is that a good, is that rattan chair got a hole in it? Or can I take that home? Uh, Dissatisfaction, frustration, or, now here's a kind of funny twist, there's also the suffering in which you get what you want and it wasn't what you wanted. You know, there's that old saying, be careful what you pray for, the gods will give it to you. So sometimes the thing that we've just been, oh, just dying for, that person's attention or, or that job that we always wanted, we get it and we think, oh, this wasn't what I wanted. Oh, my God, this person is so clingy and needy. That's not what I wanted. I thought they were somebody else. Or, this job. All these people want want, my, want a part of me. I can't do this job. But it was what we wanted all those years. So, first of all, this body shows us all our suffering. And then, if we're paying attention, you know, He says, we can begin to see in this body the cause of suffering. If we watch our mind carefully enough, which is what meditation is for, we will see the three poisons. Greed, desire. Hatred, aversion. And ignorance, or delusion. And I would like to say about the second one it's a very tricky one. We hear that word hatred and we think, oh, I don't hate anybody. I'm, I'm, no." but I have to tell you it's a much bigger category than that. It's aversion, it's annoyance, it's irritation, it's impatience, it's anger. So anytime one of those little feelings begins to arise, that's that category, that's that poison. But here's the good news. He also says, in this body, is the end of suffering. He doesn't say it's the end of suffering for all time for you. Okay. (laughs) In this moment, there can be an end to suffering. The next moment, suffering might arise, but then in that moment, you also have the opportunity to end it. And the wonderful thing is, then he, he gives us the eightfold path. He says, and here's what you must do if you want to end suffering. Yeah. Right understanding, right practice, right speech, right action, right livelihood, and so on. Right down to right meditation. And by the word right, he doesn't mean right and wrong, he means appropriate. Because sometimes anger is appropriate in the moment. When your child is about to step into the street and there's a car coming and you yell out, No! No! It sounds angry, but your child will stop. It's what is appropriate for the moment. So using our Eightfold Path and understanding all of this, still, how do we end suffering and save all beings? Mm. How how to root out these three poisons? Well, it's very tricky because the first thing we have to really understand is that we have to do it in ourself. That as long as we think she made me angry, he did this to me, we're missing the point of our meditation. We are still looking out there for the cause of our distress. I'm sure that you've all heard this quote, but it is well worth repeating. This Alexander Solzhenitsyn, when he was talking about the gulags, he said, if only there were evil people out there insidiously committing evil deeds, and it was only necessary to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. (laughs) But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who among us is willing to destroy a piece of their own heart? This is a fundamental Buddhist truth. No one is all one thing. It's actually quite a relief. You don't have to pretend anymore. Oh yeah, that little wicked thought just came into my head. Oh, you know, I'm happy for my friend she got that job, but I'm a little pissed off too because I wanted that job. It's okay. This, This is part of being human to be able to see it come up and acknowledge it, that is glorious. Because then, it goes. But if you don't see it come up, or you cannot acknowledge that in yourself, oh no, I'm not a person who ever has thoughts like that. It will eat at your heart. There is this insistence, though, in us that evil that hatred, that all those bad things, is out there. It's someone else. It's some government official who will go unnamed. It is some boss somewhere in the universe. It is some mother or father or uncle. It's always somebody else that we can say is the problem. I read a quote recently by James Baldwin, which nails this. He says, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate so stubbornly is because they sense that once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with their own pain. I think hate is our own pain pushed outward. If there's a deep hate of something, anyone or anything in your life, look at it carefully. Because it says so much more about you than it says about the thing or the person that you hate. And there is really ground for movement there. So first and foremost, we have to look here. We cannot spend the rest of our life blaming the universe for our difficulties. It may be that terrible things have happened in our life that people have done terrible things. People will do terrible things. This is part of being a member of the human race. But you cannot spend the rest of your life there. We have to start here. And we've been given this wonderful fathom long body to do it with. So, how do we do it? What actually is required of us? What is it we think we're doing here every Sunday or on Monday nights or when we sit at home quietly? Hmm. First of all, we are developing courage. If you do not think that courage is necessary, you have not been practicing long enough. Because courage is not about going out into battle in Afghanistan. Courage is hearing your alarm go off in the morning and getting up and going and sitting on that cushion no matter what. We, we can't have Tweedledum thinking. Right? Tweedledum, at one point in Alice in Wonderland, he says, well, I'm very brave generally, but today I, I just happen to have a headache. <laughs> and tomorrow it'll be, well, I had a really hard night last night. And the next day it'll be, well, I've got a really long day ahead of me. We have so many excuses for not doing what is right and good for us. I mean, would you make this excuse about not eating or drinking? Would you say to yourself, oh, I just don't really feel like eating today. I've got such a long day ahead of me, I don't think I'll have any water. (laughs) (laughs) Hello? (laughs) Of course not. But we do think this about meditation. We give ourselves all kinds of excuses and room to move and little, what I call, escape hatches. You know, we're always ready to run down our little rabbit hole. Oh no, 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 I don't want to do it today, maybe tomorrow. But I will tell you the thing about meditation practice, and this is a secret, so don't tell anyone else. Meditation is like exercise. It isn't so much about how long you do it as about how consistent you are. Anybody here who does exercise on a regular basis knows how much ground you lose when you don't do it regularly. How much harder it seems to tell yourself, oh, I really, really, really have to exercise today. I really, really, really don't feel like it. You have to do it. This is the part where courage comes in. Courage is, is sort of part of discipline. Courage to say, yes, I can do this. I will do this because I know how good this is for me. I know I am a better person, that I have a better day, that then I go out and I am more easily able to save all beings when I have sat in meditation. Okay, just as an aside, I know that for myself, If I don't sit in the morning, which is when I usually do, I mean, everybody has different times of the day, but I just find for me first thing in the morning is a good time before my mind starts. But I have to drive from Skyline Boulevard to Menlo Park four days a week to work at this school where I am. It's one of those drives where you can't get there from here. You know, you have to do this and that and the other thing. There's no straight... So you have to be paying attention, first of all, but also there's a lot of opportunity for driving rage. And what I have noticed in the last year, I've really been paying attention to this. I can see an immediate difference in my drive to school when I have not sat. Oh, you jerk, what do you think you're doing up there? As opposed to the other day, somebody did the very same thing and I went, oh, well, I guess they're in a hurry. Very different response. And you may be thinking to yourself, well, yeah, but the other person still didn't hear you one way or the other. Doesn't make any difference. It's not about the other person. It's that when I arrive at school, I'm either like this or I'm like this. And which would you rather be? The second thing we are doing on our cushion is learning how to pay attention, just, just to what's in front of us. And anybody who's been sitting in meditation even just this morning knows how hard that is, to just stay with your breath for five minutes and not let it wander away, not be distracted by, oh, so-and-so's here now. <sighs> oh, what was that beeping going on with that truck out there? How many people heard that? Yeah. Okay, there are lots of things all day long to distract us. And it's hard enough to do in meditation. Think of what it's like as soon as you get out there and there are 50 million people in their cars. So I have a great story to share with you. This is by a man, Soko Morinaga. And it's uh, called Novice to Master, but the thing I really love is the subtitle. An Ongoing Lesson in the Extent of My Own Stupidity. <laughs> so this, this young Japanese man has, uh, who is Soko Morinaga, has come to a roshi in Japan who he's heard about, and he really wants to study with him, not because he, you know, is very serious about practice particularly, but he's heard this guy's important, right? <laughs> and, and he does have some serious philosophical questions about life. So he comes, he has a little interaction, and uh, the roshi decides to give him a try. Follow me, directed the roshi, and he assigned me my first task, which was to clean the garden. Together with this 70-year-old Roshi, I went out to the garden and started to sweep with a bamboo broom. Zen temple gardens are carefully designed with trees planted to ensure that leaves will fall throughout the entire year. (laughs) Not only the maples in autumn, but also the oaks and the camphors in spring regularly shed their foliage, and when I first arrived in April, the garden was full of fallen leaves. The human being, or my own mind, I should say, is really quite mean. Here I was inside my heart denouncing this old fool and balking at the very idea of having to trust him, which is what the previous chapter was about. Yet at the same time, I wanted this old man to notice me. Ah. And so I took up that broom and I swept with a vengeance. Quite soon I had a mouth- a mountain of dead leaves. Eager to show off my diligence, I said, Roshi, where should I throw this trash? The words were barely out of my mouth when he thundered back, There is no trash! N- no trash? But, but 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 look here, I tried to indicate the pile of leaves. So, you don't believe me, is that it? Oh, no, no, it's only that, well, uh, uh, where should I throw out the leaves? That was all that was left for me to say. You don't throw them out! He roared again. Well, uh, what should I do then? Go out to the shed and bring back an empty charcoal sack, was his instruction. When I returned, I found Roshi bent to the task of combing through that mountain of leaves, sifting so that the lighter leaves came out on top while the heavier sand and stones fell down to the ground. He then proceeded to stuff the leaves into the sack I had brought from the shed, tamping them down with his feet. After he had jammed the last leaves tightly into the sack he said, take these to the shed. We will use them to make a fire under the bath. I went off to the shed and silently admitted that this sack of leaves over my shoulder was perhaps not. I also told myself that what was left of that pile out there in the garden was clearly trash and nothing but trash. (laughs) I got back, though, only to find Roshi squatting over the remains of the leaf pile, picking out the stones. And after he had carefully picked out the last stone, he said, Take these out and arrange them under the rain gutters. When I had set out the stones, together with the gravel that was already there, and filled in the spaces pummeled out by the raindrops, I found that not only were the holes filled, but that my work looked rather elegant. I had to allow that these stones, too, failed to fall into the category of trash. There was still more, though. The clods of earth, the scraps of moth, the last dregs, just what could anyone possibly do with that stuff, I wondered when I got back. I saw Roshi going about his business, gathering up all these scraps and then placing them piece by piece in the palm of his hand and then scanning the ground for little holes and dents and sinks and filling them in then with all these little clods of earth, which he then tamped down with his feet. Not a single particle remained of the mountain of leaves. Well, he queried, do you understand a little bit better now? From the first, in people and in things, there is no such thing as trash. This was the first sermon I ever heard from Zui Gan Roshi, although it did make an impression on me. Unfortunately, I, had not, I was not keen enough to attain satori as a result of simply hearing it. From the first, in people and in things, there is no such thing as trash. These words pointed to a fundamental truth of Buddhism, a truth I could not yet as conceive of in those days. I know it is a harsh word, but it is true. The longer you sit in meditation, the more you see it for yourself. We treat our life like trash. We don't pay attention to it. We throw things out heedlessly. We ignore people. When I got back from the monastery after three months one time, I walked into a grocery store. And because my mind was sort of wide open and vulnerable from those three months of being secluded away and lots of meditation, I just stood there behind my cart in the open area where all the fruits and vegetables were and I watched for a while. And I was appalled. Because these were all I could, I could see. These, these were nice people. These were your sort of average shoppers at the grocery store. And they acted like no one else in the world but them existed. They reached over each other to get things. They pushed each other's carts out of the way. They would walk by you and absolutely pretend you were not there. The Buddha himself, you know, wearing flip-flops and a t-shirt could have walked by and no one would have known. If you watch, if you go public places in particular, you will see this is what we do. We invisibilize each other. This is treating each other like trash. We do this to children. I'm a teacher of young children and I am appalled by the way people treat children for the most part. I'm sure that none of you do. (laughs) But if you watch, many adults act as though children are not there. They talk over them, they talk through them, they talk around them. Children understand a lot more than we think they do. The parents who are driving cars and talking on their cell phones and rolling through stop signs, are always surprised when later on, this is precisely what their teenage sons and daughters are doing when they drive cars, where did they learn it? All right. Every moment is important. Every moment of our life, we need to be paying attention. And how do we learn how to do that? By struggling to pay attention to our breath during meditation. And it is struggling. Sometimes it feels easy, and other times it's your mind is just so. But something always good is happening. Even if your mind this morning was very busy, still, like exercise, we are building all the time on each previous moment to develop the next thing, which is clarity. So first we have to have the courage to sit, and then we have to have the willingness to try and pay attention, and not to treat ourselves like trash either. And then eventually we get better and better at developing clarity. This is cultivating the mind of equanimity. Mm -hmm. My teacher's teacher, Suzuki Roshi, was once asked a question. A student said, Roshi, you teach us to just sit when we sit and just to eat when we eat. Could a Zen master be just angry in the same way? And he said, you mean just get angry like a thunderstorm and be done when it passes? Oh, I wish I could do that. (laughs) That is clarity. Sometimes a teacher will scold you. They will correct you. And it will just be, and then it's done. And that is because the teacher has such a level of clarity that the voice may sound angry, but there's nothing of them in it. There's no ego involvement for them. There's no attachment there for them. They are merely trying to show you something. And you, as you develop your level of clarity, appreciate that. Because you begin to see how much more grounded you are moment to moment. How when the angry person at your job comes up to you or the mean person comes up to you, you are able to just meet that person without getting all your own emotional stuff involved. You can continue with your clear mind and that person will be so surprised that their behavior will change. You cannot change someone else's behavior by pushing against them. You can only worry about what you are doing. Something that often gets left out, though, in what happens on our cushion, that I think is something that arises naturally But I realize now, particularly with Zen students, I don't know what this is. I think the masochistic ones among us are the ones that go to that practice. But there is some idea that if it's not hard and disciplined and tough, it's not real. Practice brings up joy and passion. If this practice is not doing it for you, if you don't want to do it, if there isn't joy after you've done it, if you are not so glad that you have practice in your life, go find another practice. Find something that you can feel that way about. Passion, joy. This is what is required of us. We've been given this amazing life, this amazing body. Are we supposed to sit around and just you know be real glum? and, yeah. and uh, yeah? No. The the flower in the field knows better than that. It raises its head to the sun and it opens its body. You can just, when you go out into a garden, you can just feel the joy of those plants reaching out. William Blake said, Those who enter the gates of heaven are not beings who have no passions or who have curbed the passions, but those who have cultivated an understanding of them. And how have we cultivated that understanding? Through wisdom practice, through compassion practice. The joy of giving ourselves to others is so much more joyous than giving ourselves little presents and special field trips and, you know, little candies. There is so much more joy in taking care of others, in taking care of this mind, The last thing that we are doing on this cushion, and it is so important because none of us knows how much longer we have. Could be 10 years, could be 10 hours, could go out this afternoon and have a terrible accident. We just don't know. Big earthquake could finally come, boom, California gone. We don't know. And we insist on thinking, well, let's see. I'm almost 50, so I guess I've got another 30 years maybe. Yeah. That's the way our mind works. We, we know we could die, but we really don't believe it. Believe it. Sitting on your cushion, the last thing that we are developing is fearlessness. Fearlessness. Fearlessness is not the absence of fear, by the way. Fearlessness is the recognition that at deep bottom level we all have some fear around dying. Probably not the actual death, but ooh, how have I got to get there? You know, is it gonna be really painful? Am I gonna be alone? Does anybody love me enough to take care of me? Am I gonna be disgusting? You know, these are all Real I mean, we keep these at a real low level, but anybody who works with the death industry, you know dying hospice, any of that, you get to know there are a lot of fears, and they come up. So when we are sitting on our cushion, we are looking death squarely in the face. We are knowing that this is the only moment we 've got really. there is no such thing as the future it 's an idea. It's a lovely idea, but it is an idea. We've all got, you know, calendars full of all the things we're going to be doing in the future that may never happen. There's a Japanese poet, Masaoka Shiki, and he wrote, this is about Zen, but I would say it's about meditation practice. I was wrong about Zen. I thought it taught us how to accept death, but instead... It teaches us how to live fearlessly in any circumstances. This, then, is what is required of us. Develop courage and discipline to sit daily as much as possible. Give your full attention to it, to your life, to the life of everything around you. Develop your clarity, so that no matter what the circumstances arise, you can be there to meet them. Develop and grow your passion and your joy in life, so that finally, you can then meet it through. No matter what the circumstances, no matter if tomorrow you are told, you have six months to live, get your affairs in order, that you will think to yourself, all right, I've had an incredible life. I have lived every moment joyously, and now I am going to step into this the same way. That is required of us. That is what we are here, to live each moment completely.